You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Mystery of the Universe, the Human Being, Image of Creation, known formally as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 3. In these studies, I wanted to draw your attention to certain things which can lead us back to a more concrete study of the universe than is contained in the Copernican worldview. We must not forget that Copernican cosmogony arose during the epoch after the middle of the 15th century, when there was an increasing tendency toward abstract conceptions of the universe. It came, indeed, at a time when the tendency to make everything abstract was at its height. We must always remember that it is essential now that we should get free of this tendency and bring to our thought about the universe concepts that contain something more than merely abstract ideas. It is not a matter simply of constructing a worldview similar to that of Copernicus on slightly different lines. This was brought home to me in the questions arising out of the last lecture. For these questions turned on the possibility of being able, yet again, to draw lines that would give us a quite external, abstract picture of the world. That, of course, is not what is needed. What we have to do is to grasp in its spiritual nature all that is not man in order to build a bridge from the spiritual in man to the spiritual outside him. You must understand that here at this particular time, at all events, it cannot be our task to discuss a mathematical astronomy that would necessitate beginning over again from elementary rudiments. For the fundamental concepts employed today have their source in the whole materialistic mode of thinking that has arisen since the middle of the 15th century. If we wanted to develop and complete the world view we have sketched, it would be necessary to begin with the most elementary principles and elaborate them anew. The fate that befell Copernicanism came about, as we shall see, because of the strong tendency to abstraction, which may so easily lead to intellectual excesses. True Copernicanism is not really the same as that which it has become in the hands of the followers of Copernicus. Certain theories have been selected from Copernicanism which were quite in keeping with the ways of thought of the last few centuries, and from them the worldview now taught in all schools has arisen. It is not my wish to offer any similar type of cosmogony, where, instead of the well-known ellipse in which the sun is placed as one of the foci, and in which the earth moves with an inclined axis, we simply put a screw-shaped line. What I want to do instead is to describe man's relationship with the universe, and it is in this direction that we will now pursue the matter further. 
I've tried to show you how the moment one begins to pass to a more intensive inner experience of the three directions of space in one's own body, one realizes how these directions differ in nature and kind from one another. It is only the faculty of mental abstraction in the head which makes these three dimensions abstract and does not distinguish between above and below, left and right, before and behind, but simply takes them as three directions. And we would immediately commit a similar error if we set out to build any other spatial construct in a purely abstract way. The point at issue can be made clearer if for a moment we turn to something else. Let us consider colors once more. Suppose we have a blue surface and let us say a yellow one. The conception of the world which, in its abstract thinking, gave rise to Copernican cosmogony has also led us to say, quote, I see before me blue, I see before me yellow, This is due to the fact that some object has made an impression on me. This impression appears to me as yellow, as blue. The point is that we should not begin to theorize in this way at all, saying, before me is yellow, before me is blue, and they make a certain impression upon me. That is really just as if you were to treat the word picture in the following way. Suppose you were to set about making deep researches into the word and think, in quotes, P, something must underlie this, behind P I must seek the vibrations which cause it. Then again, behind the I there must be vibrations, and underlying the C, more vibrations, and so on. There is no sense in this. We find sense only when we unite the seven letters, connecting one with another in their own plane, and read the whole word picture, when we do not speculate as to what underlies each letter, but read the word itself. Here, too, likewise, we should say that the first surface, blue, makes me penetrate, as it were, behind it, makes me plunge into it, while the other surface, yellow, makes me turn away from it. It is to these feelings into which impressions transform that we must pay attention. Then we come to something concrete. If we thus seek in the world outside what we experience inwardly, we come indeed to the feeling that we are not really within ourself at all, but that our real ego is in the universe, poured out into the universe. Instead of searching behind the external universe for, in quotes, vibrations, the atomists should seek for their own ego behind the phenomena and then try to find out how their own ego is placed into the outer world, is, as it were, poured out into it. Just as with color we should try to ascertain whether we feel we must plunge into it or whether we feel ourselves repulsed by it, so as regards the structure of our organism, we should feel how the three directions, above and below, forward and backward, right and left, differ concretely from one another. We should feel how differently is our inward experience of them when we project ourselves into the world. When we are aware of ourselves as human beings upon the earth, surrounded by the planets and fixed stars, 
we begin to feel ourselves as part of all these. It is not a matter merely of drawing three dimensions at right angles, but of thinking concretely about the cosmos and penetrating into the concrete reality of the dimensions of space. Now there is a series of constellations that is immediately evident to those who study the outer universe at night time, and has indeed always been seen as long as people have studied the stars. It is what we call the zodiac. It is immaterial whether we believe in the Ptolemaic or the Copernican system. If we follow the apparent course of the sun, it always seems to pass through the zodiac in its yearly round. Now, if we imagine ourselves placed into the universe in a living way, we find that the zodiac is of very great significance. We cannot conceive of any other plane in celestial space as being of like value with the zodiac, any more than we could conceive the plane which divides us in two and creates our symmetry as being placed at random just anywhere. We then perceive the zodiac as something through which a plane may be described, and there's a drawing. Let us suppose this plane to be the plane of the blackboard, so that we have here the plane of the zodiac. The plane of the zodiac is plain to see here as the plane of the blackboard. Footnote, a play on words here in the original German, so das seine Ebene, eben die Ebene der Tafel sei. End of footnote. We shall then have one plane before us in cosmic space, precisely as we imagined the three planes embodied in man. That is certainly a plane of which we can say that it is fixed there for us. We see the sun run its course through the zodiac, and we relate all the phenomena of the heavens to this plane. And we have here an analogy from the celestial world outside man for what we must perceive and experience as planes in man himself. Now when we draw the symmetry plane in man and have on one side of the symmetry axis the liver organized in one way and on the other side the stomach organized in a different way, we cannot think of such a fact without feeling at the same time some inner concrete relation. We cannot imagine mere lines of space lying there, but what is in the space must manifest definite forces of activity. It will not be a matter of indifference whether something is on the right or on the left. In the same way we must imagine that in the organization of the universe it is a matter of consequence whether a thing is above or below the zodiac. We shall begin to think of cosmic space as we see it there, sown with stars, we shall begin to think of it as having form. Now just as we think of this plane on the blackboard, so we can also think of another at right angles to it. Let us think of a plane extending from the constellation Leo to that of Aquarius on the other side. Then we can go further and imagine a third plane, at right angles again to this one, running from Taurus to Scorpio. We have now three planes at right angles to one another in cosmic space. There is a, a drawing of this. These three planes are analogous 
to the three we have imagined in man. If we think of the plane we have denoted as that of will, the plane, that is, which separates our front from our back, we have the plane of the zodiac itself. If we think of the plane running from Taurus to Scorpio, we have the plane of thinking, that is, our thought plane would be ascribed to this plane. And the third plane would be that of feeling. Thus we have divided cosmic space by means of three planes, just as we divided man in our first lecture. What is important initially is not simply to replace the Copernican cosmic system with some other, but to enter into this concrete picture, to imagine cosmic space itself so organized that one can distinguish in it three planes at right angles to one another, just as can be done in the case of man. The next question to arise for us must be, is every single aspect of man really to be conceived as forming an integral part of what appears to us in outer cosmogony? We emphasized in the last lecture that the earth, the sun, and other planets progress in a spiral. Such a statement is, of course, merely diagrammatic, for the spiral line itself is curved. That, however, does not concern us here. What is important for us at the moment is that the earth, as we have seen, follows the sun in such a spiral. So we must ask whether man, too, is so interwoven in this movement that he is absolutely compelled to take part in it in all circumstances. For if that be so, it, if it is absolutely inevitable that he follows this movement, then there is no place at all for free will or for moral activity on his part. Let us not forget that we began our study with this very question, how to build a bridge leading from pure natural necessity to morality, to what is motivated by the impulse toward freedom. Here we can go no further if we rely only on the Copernican system, for what does this offer us? We picture the earth upon which we stand. Whether the earth or the sun goes rushing along has no bearing here. If man is connected with all this in absolute natural causality, it is impossible for him to develop free will. We must therefore ask whether the entire being of man lies bound within this natural causality or whether we ever get beyond it. We must not, however, put the question in a mood of thought similar to 19th century materialists, who pointed out that so many people have died on earth that it would be impossible to find space to fit all their souls. These materialists were wondering how much space each soul might need. But what point does it really have to ask such a question? We must, above all, clearly understand that the full sense and meaning of phenomena in the universe, and movement is also a phenomenon, also becomes clear to us when we grasp it in specific cases. We distinguish in some way what takes place in the four or eight realms, what is above and below, the plane of the zodiac, will, what is right and left of the plane of feeling, or what goes on this or on the other side of the plane of thinking. We feel that something is connected with this differentiation, 
a reality connected with the cosmos, namely something that manifests in recapitulation, as we have it, for instance, in what we designate as, quote, the course of the year, close quote. And we must now ask in a concrete way, how can we find a connection between man and the yearly course of the seasons? Well, first of all, we find that in descending from the spiritual world into the physical, we pass through conception. We remain for about nine months in the embryonic condition, that is to say, three months fewer than the year's course. We might be inclined to call this, therefore, something very much at odds with the cycle of the seasons. Man seems to show, even at the very genesis of his physical earthly existence, that his development pays no attention to the course of cyclical rhythms in nature. This is, however, not the case. If we know how to observe the child during the first three months of his earthly life, we find that these first three months, which together with the nine months of pregnancy make the year complete, manifest in a very true sense a continuation of his embryonic life. What takes place in the brain, as well as other things happening with the little child, can, from a certain aspect, be considered as still belonging to his embryonic life. Thus we can say that, in a certain respect, the first year of human development corresponds, after all, with the year's course. Then comes another year, or about a year. If we observe the child after the first year, we see that the second year is approximately the time of the growth of the milk teeth. We observe the child during the second year after its conception, and we find that this year corresponds on average with the growth of the first teeth. Now let us ask, does this continue? No, it does not. The first teething year seems to represent an inner cycle of seasons within the child. And so it does, just as the first year of life, including nine months in the womb, is at the same time an inner cycle of the year. In the formation of the milk teeth, the universe obviously works in the child. But then something different happens. In a space of time seven times as long, the force which pushes out the second teeth is at work in the child. Here something occurs which we cannot connect with the world's course, but with something that is withdrawn out of it and works out of our inner being. Here then we have a concrete instance. We have, first of all, in respect to one series of facts, the world organism projected into man in the formation of his milk teeth. And then, when we look at the permanent teeth, we find that these are man's own production. An inner human cosmic system places them into the outer cosmic system. Here we have the first herald of man's potential freedom, and the fact that he engages in something which clearly shows his independence from the universe. This process retains the sequence of the universe within it, but man slows it down within him, giving the same process a different velocity, seven times as slow, thus taking seven times as long. Here we have a contrast between what takes place within us and the outer being of the universe. 
another independence from the outer universe, is very, very clearly demonstrated in the alternation between sleeping and waking. The alternation between day and night takes place, of course, at different times for different places on the earth. What does this alternation between waking and sleeping mean for us? Roughly speaking, it means that sometimes our ego and astral body are united with our etheric and physical bodies, and at other times our ego and astral body are separated from the etheric and physical bodies. Now, someone in the present cycle of civilization, especially one who calls himself a civilized person, is no longer entirely dependent in this respect on the natural cycle. The cycle of waking and sleeping, in its measure of time, seems to resemble the cycle of nature. But nowadays there are people, I have known such, who turn night into day and day into night. In short, we can rest ourselves free from connection with the world's course. The sequence in us of the sleeping and waking states shows, however, that we still have within us an echo of this regularity. The same is true of many phenomena in the human being. When we observe our alternation between waking and sleeping, and nature's alternation between day and night, and how we are still bound to the alternation of waking and sleeping, though not to that of day and night, we must say, man's inner states were once bound to the outer course of the universe, but he has broken away from this. Civilized human beings nowadays have almost entirely broken away from the course of outer nature. Only when we perceive, when we discover with our intellect that it is better for us to sleep at night rather than by day, do we consciously return to outer laws. It is not the case, however, that night takes possession of us in such a way that we absolutely have to sleep. No civilized person really feels, quote, night makes me sleep, day wakes me up, close quote. At most, if night falls and a lecture is still going on here, the two facts taken together may perhaps affect some in such a way that they experience an absolute call of nature to fall asleep. These, however, are not necessarily things we need to include in our picture of the world. Thus the point to observe is that we have wrested ourselves away from the course of nature, but that the rhythms of our activity, nevertheless, still show a reflection of it. Let us see how transitions from one to the other condition manifest themselves. We may say that in our waking and sleeping we still distinctly show a reflection of the course of nature, but that we have wrested ourselves free from it. In the appearance of the second teeth, we no longer reveal a chronology at one with nature, such as is still expressed in the growth of the first teeth. When we receive our second teeth, a new course of nature arises in us, for this is not in our control like sleeping and waking. Our free choice does not enter here. Here something appears that belongs to nature, yet does not follow the larger course of nature, something which is particular to man. And yet it is not within his free choice, it is implanted as a second natural organization within the first. In all these things, 
I am speaking of quite simple everyday matters, but it is a question of noticing them in the right way. We must now examine the fact that there is a certain natural event which is interwoven with the growth of the first teeth. Let us draw it in diagram, and there is one. Within this natural event or process, as a part of the process, the formation of our first teeth proceeds. Then we have another natural occurrence, one intrinsically human, not at all embedded in the general course of world phenomena, the growth of the second teeth. To draw this we must present it as a different stream. Yet the difference is not yet clear in the drawing. They both look alike. The fact is, we must represent it in a quite different way if we want to depict the connection between the receiving of the first and second teeth. We must draw what gives rise to the first teeth as occurring seven times deeper for the second teeth. If we draw them side by side, parallel, we have no picture of the relation of the first teeth to the second. We only get a picture of this by drawing the force giving rise to the first teeth as encircled by another force upon which the growth of the second teeth depends. Here the difference in speed of the process makes it necessary for the movement to curve. You can imagine it in terms of a star somewhere in space with another star circling, excuse me, with another circling round it, whose orbit exerts an influence at seven different points, say, as it passes round. The simple fact of the revolution gives rise to something qualitative, a creative activity. Looking at the growth of the first teeth and of the second, we must therefore say that this has something to do with certain world forces one of which circles round the other. I put this example before you because it can show what it means to speak of real, actual movements in space, and how empty is the kind of talk which says Jupiter, or it may be Saturn, is so and so many miles distant from the sun and encircles it in such and such a line. That tells one nothing at all. It is an empty phrase. We can only know anything about facts like these when we unite some content with them, such as the orbit of Jupiter is like this, the orbit of Saturn like that, and the revolution of the one serves the revolution of the other. I have here merely pointed out the necessity inherent in certain specific processes. Some of you may say that they are difficult to understand, or perhaps you will not say so, but will consider that there is no need to discuss them. Not until people learn to discuss and study such things will they be able to progress to a definite and clear view of the universe. And then they will give up what is presented so superficially in Copernicanism, the conception of the celestial movements solely in lines. Instead of this, an impulse should enter humanity which says it is necessary to be clear first about our own most elementary experiences before turning our attention to the outer mysteries of the universe. We only learn the significance of certain interconnections which we read from the stars when we understand the corresponding processes in our organism. 
for what lies within our skin is no other than a reflection of the organism of the outer world. Thus, if we draw a diagram of the human being, we have here the blood circulation, merely in diagrammatic form, and we can trace its path. It is all within us. If we now go out into the universe and look for the sun, it is the sun which corresponds to the heart within us. What passes from the heart through the body, or actually from the body to the heart, does in truth approximately resemble the movements connected with the course of the sun. Instead of drawing abstract lines, we should look into the human being. Within our own skin, we can then find what is outside in celestial space and can see how we are embedded in the cosmic order. At the same time, we can also discover that we are independent of the cosmic system and that we gradually gain this independence little by little, as I have shown. We will speak further about this in the next lecture. For the present, we must realize that we are dealing with it here merely in a diagrammatic way. Look at the principal course of the blood vessels in the human organism. Seen from above, it is like a looped line. Instead of drawing it, we should follow the hieroglyphs inscribed in our own selves. For then we would learn to understand the nature of the qualities in the greater universe. This we can only do when we are able to recognize and have living experience of the fact I have spoken about in public lectures, that the heart does not work like a pump driving the blood through the body that the heart is moved by the circulation, which is itself a living thing. And the circulation is in its turn determined by the organs. The heart, as can be seen in embryology, is really nothing more than a result of blood circulation. If we can understand what the heart is in the human body, we shall learn to understand also that the sun is not, as Newton calls it, the general cable pulley sending its ropes, the force of gravitation, toward the planets. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and so forth, drawing them by these unseen forces of attraction or spraying out light to them and the like. But that just as the movement of the heart is the product of the life force of the circulation, so the sun is no other than the product of the whole planetary system. The sun is the result, not the point of departure. The living cooperation of the solar system produces in the center a hollow which reflects as a mirror. That is the sun. I have often said that physicists would be greatly astonished if they could travel to the sun. They would find nothing of what they now imagine, but simply a hollow space. In fact, a hollow space of suction which annihilates everything within it. A space indeed that is more than hollow. A hollow space merely receives what is put into it, but the sun is a hollow space of such a nature that anything brought to it is immediately absorbed and disappears. There in the sun is not only nothing, but less than nothing. What shines to us in the light is the reflection of what first enters from cosmic space, just as the movement of the heart is, as it were, 
what accumulates and condenses there out of the living activity of hunger and thirst, etc., in the interaction of organs and movement of blood. If we understand the processes within our organism, they can also enable us to understand the processes at work in outer cosmic space. The abstract dimensions of space are only a prop to help us follow these things more easily. But if we wish to follow them up in a truthful way, we must try to experience ourselves inwardly and then turn outward with inner understanding. They understand the sun who understand the human heart, and so it is with the rest of what occurs within us. Thus it is a matter of supreme importance to take the saying, Know thyself, seriously, and from that to pass on to comprehension of the universe. Through self-knowledge, which embraces our whole being, we shall understand the universe outside us. You see, we cannot get on so quickly with constructing a cosmogony. In order to make a few of the features of this cosmogony clear, we can, of course, draw a spiral but this does not yet show the actual state of things. For to describe a few more features, we must make the spiral itself move spirally. We must make the line of movement itself curve. And even then we have not come far. For in order to describe certain facts, such as the difference between the growth of the first year's teeth and the growth of the seven year's teeth, we must describe an inner displacement within the line itself. So you see that the construction of a universe is not a thing that can be done very quickly. The wish to construct a cosmogony with a few lines must be relinquished, and we must learn to regard our present conception of the world as an absolute delusion. This is intended as a preparatory study for what I mean to say in the next lecture. It had to be rather more difficult But once these initial difficulties are overcome, we shall have constructed the preliminary conditions for uniting the three important domains of life, nature, morality, and religion, by means of two corresponding bridges. The end of Lecture 3